Good morning, Arbor Church. It's a Sunday. We love Sundays. Thank you for being here. If this is your first time here, I want to welcome you. My name is Scott. Um, I'm one of the regular speakers here by the grace and mercy of Jake. He allows me to do that alongside of him and Garrett and other speakers that we have. And I'm thrilled to be back up here to share with you and talk to you again. So thank you for being here. Um, We're going through a series of the Psalms. And we've looked at different psalms and what they mean to our lives and our relationship and our walk with God. And today, we're going to tackle Psalm 51. I got through it first service, but I was very honest with them that this is a very personal, profound psalm to me. And I've preached on it before, but it took four weeks to get through. And it is a theologically deep psalm. And so I'm feeling a little bit of pressure to get through all of Psalm 51 in one service. And I did it last service in a short amount of time, about 93 minutes. So I'm hoping to cut off those three minutes and keep it right at 90. I'm just... But it's a personal psalm to me because of what I've walked through to my personal life, and it creates a lot of feelings for me that come up. So before we get started, I'd just like to start us with some prayer to get us ready and to help me get centered. God, I come to you today, Lord. Um, I'm a mess. We're all a mess. And yet you use us to deliver your message to a broken world. God, I pray that you would move me out of the way today. I pray that you would use your scripture to speak to the hearts and people here, God. I pray that you would give us ears that want to hear, hearts that want to listen, and then feet that want to go do what it is you spoke to us today, God. We thank you for your word and your name. Amen. I don't know how many of you have ever got caught red-handed. Your hand in the cookie jar. Your mom or dad walked in when you've got your little brother or sister pinned to the ground and their underwear's over their head. Not that that's never happened in my life. I don't know if you've gotten caught in a big sin or a small sin or a big lie or a little lie, but if you've ever got caught red-handed, I know that for many of us and for me oftentimes, the knee-jerk reaction is blaming somebody else, denial, that's not me. Reminds me of a story when I was growing up. My mom's side of the family, I had a lot of cousins that we were all within really similar ages from like 5 to 15 or 16, really close in age. And so when we all got together with my mom's side of the family, it was just kid fest. And when we'd go to my Aunt Ginger's house, part of the tradition was that we would all sleep upstairs in my older cousin, Jenna and Joy's bedroom. It was this big, huge bedroom, and we would just pile sleeping bags, mattresses, whatever, pillows in there, and we would all just sleep in there. And our parents would get us up there, they'd shove us into that room, they'd talk to us, and they'd say this famous word, no talking, go to sleep. And then they'd walk out, and they wouldn't shut the door all the way, they'd leave it open about that much. And then they'd go downstairs, and they would all sit around because it was parent pinochle time. I don't even know what pinochle is or how to play it, but I know my parents, oh, there you go, somebody from the 1960s, congratulations. <laughs> Um, But my parents loved to play pinochle, and they thought that if they kept the door open, they could hear us talking and come up and do the parental thing, go to sleep. I told you no talking. Um, And they didn't realize, though, that their voices traveled up the stairs and would come through the door, and we could hear possibly what they were saying, and sometimes we heard some unchoice things that were being said around the table of pinochle. But this particular night, we got the idea that let's tell ghost stories. Let's tell each other ghost stories. 
And my cousin Janelle, probably my best friend growing up in life, told me, you got to go shut the door. I'm like, no, I'm not getting out of bed. They'll hear me. She goes, go shut the door. I'm like, I'm not shutting the door. We'll just whisper real quick, shut the door. I'm like, okay. So I get out of my sleeping bag and I'm creeping across the floor, trying not to let anything creak or move or make a sound. And just as I'm reaching for the door handle, my mom and my aunt push the door open and walk in. And without missing a beat, as I'm standing there guilty, all right, with the door handle here and them looking at me and all the other people, and I go, it was Janelle's fault. <laughs> Just threw her right under the bus. And I had gotten caught red-handed. And my immediate reaction was to run to blame, to deflect, to push away for fear of punishment or getting in trouble. Folks, that's what we're going to delve in today. Because I think for many of us, we walk around in this fear of our relationship with God at times and going to him and truly being vulnerable and honest with him. He already knows everything. Who do we think we're fooling? Yet we don't know how to go back and restore relationship with God in a proper manner that helps us live fully in his grace and mercy on earth. So we're going to look at Psalm 51. And the background of Psalm 51 is about King David. Israel wanted a king. God said, I'll choose a king for you. They said, no, we want to choose our king because we want him to look like the other kings of the people around us. So they chose a rugged, handsome, athletic warrior man, kind of like Garrett, except for the tall part. And they made Saul their king. And Saul turned out to be a roller coaster of a disaster. Highs and lows all over the map, ended up rebelling against God, did not work out well. So God says, I'll pick your king. And he picked a little freckled, short, red-headed shepherd boy and turned him into a giant killer, a lion slayer and the greatest warrior Israel ever had. And he became the warrior king that expanded the kingdom of Israel to the greatest that it's ever been. And at the pinnacle of David's reign, he had his armies and leaders delegated out on the fringes of his kingdom, still expanding it, and he stepped back to live in comfort of his palace. And oftentimes we fall into sin when we get away from living on the edge with Jesus out in the battles of the things we need to be doing, and we get comfortable in our own palace. And one morning David got up, and he walked to the top of his palace at a time of day when he should not have been on the rooftop because across the rooftops of his kingdom and his city, people were bathing. And down below, he spied a beautiful woman bathing. And her name was Bathsheba, and he lusted after her. And it says in 2 Samuel that he sent for her, and she was brought to him. And he slept with her and sent her back home. And if that wasn't enough guilt, she reported back that she was pregnant. And now he's filled with fear. People are going to find out of what I've done. Her husband is going to find out. Her husband was a soldier, a really good soldier in David's army, an obedient soldier that fought on the front lines. So David concocted this plan. I'm going to bring Uriah, her husband, home, have him spend a weekend or a week of reprieve with his wife. They'll sleep together. Then she can say the baby is his, not ours. The problem is Uriah got there and said, why did you send me home? I should be out with my men doing what I was called to do in battle. David said, no, go home to your wife Bathsheba. 
He said no, and he slept outside the palace gates until David sent him back. But David just didn't send him back without another plan to cover up his sin. And he told Joab, his general, put Uriah on the very front lines. And with Uriah out on the front lines, when the battle gets the most heated, pull everybody back. A very sneaky way to commit murder. And it worked. So now you have David, chosen warrior king by the king of kings, who has had an affair got a woman pregnant, murdered her husband, and is living a lie. Trying to live like a chosen king on earth. But this right here, between him and God, it's broken. It's disrupted. And eventually David gets confronted by his prophet Nathan, who tells a beautiful story about a man who stole sheep from others who had no sheep to steal, and looks at David and says, you're that man. And David's called out in front of everybody for his sin. And at that point, David could have made many choices. He could have blamed, he could have pushed it off to somebody else, he could have lied, he could have done whatever, but what we find is what David did is Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, we're going to find all right, our key point for today. Let's read the passage. It's a long passage. I ask that you bear with me as we read through it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop. I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You, who are my God, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifice of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, then bowls will be offered on your altar. This psalm is all about David's heart while seeking forgiveness. It is in essence about what David felt and thought in his heart and soul. It is a raw, authentic, vulnerable glimpse of a king bowing down before the king of kings in repentance. It is about Christians today and our connections to God. What makes a Christian is not that he or she doesn't get discouraged. It's not he or she doesn't sin or fail. 
It's not that he or she doesn't feel rotten about it. That is not what makes us a Christian. What makes a Christian is the connection that we as discouraged, sinful, guilt-ridden people have with Jesus Christ, God our Savior. And how we think and feel about our discouragement and sin and guilt-ridden conscience, this is what makes a Christian a Christian. This is not a self-help manual or guide or step-by-step process of how to seek forgiveness. That's not what Psalm 51 is. There's truths in there that relate to all of that, but it's not a how-to manual. As a school principal at an elementary school, we work all the time on resolving conflicts with children. All sorts of things happen. And part of what we do is we have kids learn how to truly apologize beyond, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and then walk away. And we don't try to force it. We actually try to give them time to think about it and what they did wrong. And so we've come up with this thing called a four-part apology. We didn't come up with it, I should correct. We have borrowed it like everything in education. And the first step in the four-part apology is, I'm sorry for, or I apologize for, fill in the blank. And the child is thinking and reflecting on what is it specifically I did. I'm sorry for slapping you on the head. I'm sorry for eating your crayons. I'm sorry for calling you nanny nanny poo poo pants, which probably hasn't been called since the 1970s. Kids just don't use that word anymore, but it came to my mind. So we asked them to specifically state to the person, I'm sorry for what I specifically did. Second thing is, it was wrong because, and this is key, it, we, we get them to think it's not wrong because of, oh, it breaks the rules, or we're not supposed to do that, or I could get in trouble. No, what we want them to move to is a different layer of it was wrong because of how it made the person feel. What did it do to relationship? What did it do to trust? How did it break the expectations we have in our building of showing respect and being responsible and kind to everybody? So it made you feel upset or it hurt your feelings or it embarrassed you. And they're owning the feeling part of it. Then they go to the next part that says, in the future, I will. And they talk about what they could do differently moving forward. And then they say the last part, will you forgive me? Now, it's a cool process to go through, and it doesn't work perfect every time. And we start this in kindergarten, and kids figure it out. And I'm not joking you, they get it figured out. And there's nothing more sweet than seeing a little kindergartner go to a little girl says, I'm sorry for hitting you in the head. And her friend, he goes, oh, that's okay. I'm sorry for taking your crayons. And they walk through the whole thing. And at the end, the little girl goes, will you forgive me? And the little boy goes, well, of course, you're my friend. And they walk over and they hug. Yeah, don't go all too quickly. Because for every one of those, there's the kid that goes, will you forgive me? And the other kid goes, I hear what you said. I need more time and you better watch out. Or just the blunt one, no, I don't forgive you. So you think it's all warm and fuzzy times in elementary, but kids are funny. Now that's a simplistic formula. But I bet as we go through Psalm 51, if you keep that formula in the back of your mind, I apologize for, it was wrong because, in the future I will, will you forgive me? And what I look for in children is not that they can fill that out and say it, but am I seeing in their growth remorse? remorse, recognizing that what I did was wrong for what it did to you. And we're going to look at Psalm 51 through that lens. Because the key point today is this. 
A broken and contrite heart connects us with Christ. A broken and contrite heart connects us with Christ. And then we can take care of all this if we can do this right. In verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. He begins right away, Have mercy on me, your unfailing love, your great compassion. He throws himself at the mercy of God. We need to realize the only way we get repentance and forgiveness in life is through the mercy of God. Ongoing, always available to us, yet we don't go to it enough. We try to fix it ourselves. We try to cover it up ourselves. We try to pretend everything's okay. And then David says, blot out my transgressions. In the Hebrew, this word maka means to stroke or to rub something away, almost to like erase it. Peter uses it in the New Testament when he's preaching in Acts, and he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. In the Greek, it means to be obliterated, completely gone. And what David is recognizing is that his behavior has put the stain on his relationship between him and his God. He's created a break, a disconnect, a barrier. And that stain of that sin needs to somehow be removed. And he's crying out to the only person he knows can do it, God. Therapy can help get you there. Counseling can help you arrive there. Family can help you move forward. Friends can point it out. Nathan called him out. But the only person that can blot it out and remove it and repair it is our God and his mercy. Verse 2, he says, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, God's provision for us calls for a total removal of all traces of sin, transgressions, and iniquities by erasing them in order to be in relationship with him. We cannot be in relationship with God and Jesus Christ if there's not some way to get rid of all that. And the way was Jesus Christ, his son. In David's time, it was the promise of a savior and his faith in God for that coming savior. He is the only that can wash us away and cleanse us from all our iniquity. That's the starting point. Not your own internal goodness. Your own internal goodness doesn't amount to anything to getting rid of stains of sin. It's only God. In verses 3 through 5 we read, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Do you see the ownership there? My. Not ours. Not pulling Bathsheba into the party. My sin. My transgression. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David does something key and significant here. All right? He takes ownership. Too often I find myself more concerned about the impact my sin has had on others around me because it will ruin my reputation. I find myself don't wanting to lose approval of people around me, so I try to take care of things here. And if everybody around me is like, oh, it's okay, Scott, we understand. Oh, we forgive you. Everything's good. I go on my merry way, and I don't understand that the real problem is here. Because no matter how much I can smooth things over down here on earth and make things good with relationships around me, if I haven't fixed it here, this is just going to end up being a pretty mess. Covered up for a while. 
And pretty soon the spots start to show and the stain comes back out because we really can't get rid of it. David takes ownership. It reminds me of another story when I was um, a child and around bedtime again. There's a theme in my life about bedtime. This time it was at my house. My dad had built us a home and I have two little brothers and the three of us, he'd built this great big room that we all shared. And every night my mom would take us up there. My dad and my mom would tuck us in. This night my mom was home with us. She tucked us into bed, shut the door again with those famous words, no talking, go to sleep. I never understood as a kid why is bedtime 8 o'clock? Summer, it's, the sun's still out, what's going on? Until I became a parent and realized at 8 o'clock, it's done. <laughs> Amen? That's it, I'm going home, we made it. But anyway, we never quit talking. She would go back downstairs and we'd throw things, we'd start throwing pillows, and this one night we thought, let's play a football game. So we got a Nerf football out, and we're throwing the ball around the room, tackling, having fun, not thinking about all the noise it was making on the floor below us. And I threw the Nerf football and it hit this blind in our room and the blind came collapsing down to the floor with a big crash. My brothers, quick as can be, whoop, right back in their beds. I'm over there trying to put the blind back up. I hear my mom coming up the stairs, you know, clump, clump. And I'm like scrambling. I don't know what to do. And she gets to the door and I, she walks in and I just drop the blind. I grab a belt and I just hand it to her. It's my fault. I'm in trouble. Do whatever you want to do. Throw myself on the altar. Fortunately, my brothers were in there. And my brother Mark spoke up like a good brother that he was. He said, yeah, it was Scott. He threw the football. He broke the blind. <laughs> my little brother JJ, though, he didn't say anything near like that. In fact, he didn't say anything at all. He just pretended he was asleep. <laughs> the point is, I thought that if I just throw myself on the altar, mom will show grace and mercy and forgiveness, which she did because she was my mom and she always forgave us. But the point of this is not that you go to God, oh, it's all my fault, I get it, I'm so terrible, I'm so rotten, just blame. No. Because you're missing again the part of this psalm. It's about the heart. It's about a broken and contrite heart. It's truly recognizing God. It doesn't matter what I've done to people here. It matters what I did to you first and foremost. Because only if I get it right with you and recognize I've sinned against you, can you give me the ability to correctly go about fixing the mess I made down here with my sin? And that's the door David walked through. Vulnerable, open, honest. The key here is that David admits and understands his sin is first and foremost against God and that he has done evil in God's sight. And what others think of his sin is irrelevant to what his Savior and God thinks of his sin. And folks, I don't live in that realm nearly enough. I worry far too much about what my earthly relationships think about me than considering what my father thinks about me, which is always cloaked in mercy and grace. And yet we're fearful because we think he wants to punish when really all he wants to do is get two kindergartens together and restore relationships. See, we, are to, we need to admit our sin against God first, and then we can admit it against others. We need to first confess to God, and then we can confess to others. We need to first seek forgiveness from God, then we can seek forgiveness from others. Why? Because it is only by God and God alone that we even have relationship. They're even able to engage in relationship on earth. Because he is the element that creates the need in us and the desire and the ability to live in relationship. Verses 7 through 9, David once again is seeking to be cleansed. He says, 
Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop is a wild bush, a shrub, shrubbery. I just worked that into two sermons right there. (laughs) Two sermons in a row. Give it up for shrubbery. Some of you are still lost. I'm sorry. Your life just is not completely full yet. It's a wild bush that they would, they would break and harvest and use in purification ceremonies, specifically the Jews in purification ceremonies for their, for their sins. It was a very aromatic, pungent um, bush that gave off a smell that was like, wow, kind of like modern-day Febreze, right? that would, can cover up any sorts of smells except teenage boys. <laughs> Cleanse me, and if you have teenage boys, you know what I'm talking about. I should say girls, too. My girls were pretty stinky, too. <laughs> Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out. There it is again, blot out my iniquity. He's going to God saying, I need you to cleanse me. I need you to wash me. I need you to rebuild the bones that you have crushed inside of me. I need you to blot it out. See, we think we can fix our sins. I think I can make it right because then I don't have to engage in this vulnerability with God because I think I'm going to feel shame and guilt. No, that's what I feel when I don't do this because when I finally get to where God is, we're going to find out you encounter everything but shame and guilt. doesn't mean you don't encounter consequences or pain and hurt, but not shame and guilt. And David here is saying there's nothing I can do to fix this, I need you to cleanse me, wash me, make me whiter than snow, blot it out. It's only up to you and you, God. And I don't know if we truly believe that. I definitely don't live it all the time. Verses 10 through 12, David is seeking to restore the relationship, not just forgiveness, but restoration. Because folks, what I've learned in life, forgiveness doesn't mean anything if you can't restore. Now, restoration may look different. Let me say this, is a whole different sermon. Hear me on this. This is important. Forgiveness does not mean you forget. Forgiveness does not mean you automatically trust again. I would never assume to know the hurt in this room. But I know the hurt that kids I've worked with have walked through. My family has walked through some dark, evil hurt. Things that have been done to children that they should, they'll never forget. And they should never trust that person again in their life. But there's a difference between that when I'm talking about forgiveness is not holding that sin to keep you a prisoner. And so when I speak of forgiveness, I understand there's a whole tangled mess that goes along with that. But when you go to Christ to get forgiveness, he gives you an ability to move past what has happened to you or what you have done that continues to hold you prisoner. I heard it said once that to forgive is to set the prisoner free and then realize you were the prisoner all along. Here's what David is saying. Restoration. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In essence, God, I am broken, I am weak, I need you. In these verses, we see David's desire for a renewed connection with his Savior. He has been suffering in a state of distance from God, a self-inflicted separation due to his sin. See, God will not leave us. Rather, it is we that leave God. 
Our sins make us draw away. Our lack of communication and prayer leads us to silence. Our hurt, anger, or doubts lead us to distance ourselves from God. And he's fully aware of this. See, when David says in here, create in me a pure heart, renew a steadfast spirit, right? Restore in me the joy of your salvation. He needs relationship. James tells us in the New Testament, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a wrong picture some people get. The idea that, yes, I am supposed to approach God in my forgiveness. But it's not like human forgiveness where I may have to come this way and you may have to draw back and together we're walking towards each other. Because sometimes there's blame on both ends. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes we're just jerks, rude, awful, terrible people. And sometimes we have to do all the walking to repair. Oftentimes, both people have to walk towards each other. But when this says draw near to God and he will draw near to you, it's a beautiful picture. Get this. It's the idea that as we draw near to God and are walking towards him to seek forgiveness, he grabs us and draws us into his arms. He doesn't move. God never leaves. He's steadfast. He's the same place he was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so when David is going to God saying, restore me, he's on his knees looking up at him saying, restore me, renew within me, give me a stronger spirit, help me sustain myself through this time. And God is like the father and the prodigal son. That when his son comes home, he doesn't shower him with punishment and blame and shame. He jumps off the porch and draws him into his arms and weeps on his neck and says, welcome home. The prodigal son is not a salvation story. It's a restoration and forgiveness story. The prodigal son was already part of the family. He just broke the connection and the trust, just like David here is. The father in that story represents God. The son represents us. David had drawn away from God due to his own sin. I know in my life I've done things that have pushed me away from God. And when I've been awoken to them through my own awakening, through my friend's awakening, through family, through loved ones, through therapy and counseling... I've had to go back to God first because I've tried to fix it on my own at times. It doesn't work. In verses 13 through 17, we get to the heart of what I want to leave you with today. David has thrown himself on the mercy of God. He has admitted his sins. He has sought forgiveness that only God can give. He's looking for restoration. And then he says, then, what will I do moving forward, God? Then, I will teach transgressors your ways. I will teach them from my own lessons so that sinners can turn back to you. I will use my example, my vulnerability, my mistakes to help others learn. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. He murdered somebody. Oh God, you are God, my savior. Only you can help me through that. Open my lips, I'm oh, sorry, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Not what I've done to fix this, what you have done. God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. In the Old Testament, in order to gain forgiveness, God had set up a series of customs and expectations of sacrificing an animal. It seems strange to us in our day and age. 
but that was the religious custom to restore relationship with God was to sacrifice an animal. And the symbolism was that the blood of the animal was a blotting out, a covering of the sin of whatever the person had done to restore relationship with God. It was a, few, it was a symbolic gesture of the symbol of Jesus on the cross who once and for all became the final sacrifice for all mankind through his shed blood, blotting out all our sins once and for all so that you and I no longer have to go to an altar and make a sacrifice. In other words, what David is saying here is this, God, I know I'm so messed up. I know I screwed up. I know I'm so broken that no matter if I were to do all the sacrifices you demand from me, if you and I don't fix this right, it doesn't mean anything. For you and me in today's world, all your apologies, all your explanations, all you're trying to make things right with people you've hurt, you've lied to, or yourself, or others, good luck having it carry and mean anything if you haven't got this fixed. Because if you can't do that with God first and foremost, all this is just a show, folks. We're just playing pretend. And we do it pretty well. I'm pretty good at it. I've lived a long time with sin sitting back here and nobody knowing about it. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm funny. I'm outgoing. All right? I can really do things a lot, and I can make things happen. And yet there's this nagging anchor dragging me further and further away from God's voice in my life. And what David is saying here is, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Those are just mere actions. Listen to this. My sacrifice, O oh God, my sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. In the Hebrew, it's pretty simple. Broken means crushed to tiny pieces. David is saying, I am crushed before you. I was this beautiful sculpture that you have carved, and my sin has dismantled it to rubble. But God is the great sculpture. And he's got the best super glue in the world. And he can put any statue back together. He can heal any relationship. He can repair any hurt. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise me. I believe that David had gone silent in his relationship with God. I believe he's claim, proclaiming his intentions for seeking forgiveness and restoration so that he could begin to engage in communication again with God. Without a broken and contrite heart, though, he knows there's no possible means for restoration of the heart. He knows that if he doesn't show himself authentically and vulnerable before God, there's nothing that can be done. This word is used to describe the mind and heart that is crushed and broken by the weight of guilt. God will not treat the person with a contrite heart with contempt or disregard. He looks on us with favor and grants his blessing and forgiveness. So we should find encouragement and hopefulness just as David did in Psalm 51. The idea though is that any mere external thing we do is just frosting on a cake. And it doesn't matter. I told you this psalm is very personal for me because it's a connection to a point in my life that 
still is hard for me to talk about. And I don't think I've ever talked about this at Arbor. I've shared how I've been through a divorce. Many of you know that story. But when I was uh, 26, I got a phone call from my mom early one morning when I was living in Montana. My family was all back in Illinois and Missouri living there at the time. My dad had decided to leave the marriage. She was a mess. I was in shock. It made me a mess. In three days, I was scheduled to go up to the mountains to a Christian camp and be the program director for the summer, which is what me and my wife, Ashley, at the time did every summer. And we were five months away from having our first child, Morgan. My brother Mark was living in Missouri going to nursing school. The only people at home were my little brother JJ and my little sister Melissa. And they had to walk through the brunt and the pain and the hurt of watching her dad pack up all his stuff and leave. My sister standing in the driveway begging him, Dad, please don't leave. You don't have to leave. Dad, we can talk. Mom and I can work this out with you. We can figure things out. No, I'm leaving. My little brother JJ feeling like he's the only man at the house to have to do something and calls my dad up and convinces him to meet him for dinner and sits down with my dad and beseeches him, why are you doing this, Dad? We love you. You don't need to do this. And my dad's saying, this isn't about you. This is about your mom and I don't love her anymore. And JJ going, no, Dad, it is about us. You're leaving the family. You're not just leaving mom. You're leaving all of us. And if you leave mom, you leave me. And if you leave, I can't be with you anymore. And dad goes, if that's the way you have to do it, then you do it. And he walked away. I don't share this to make my dad look bad. I love my dad. We have worked on a restorative relationship for years. I share this story to tell you what sin can do in the heart of a man or a woman that it walks with God. It isn't evil. And it can drive things deep into your heart and soul that you'll do things you never thought you would do. My little brother, JJ, I love him, has not talked to my dad in over 20 years since that day. I am not here to say whether that's right or wrong. That's between me and my brother. We talk about it a lot. Every decision in our family and the relationships each one of us has, which are all different with my dad to this day, no judgment. I'll speak for me in my personal the last week of camp, there was a speaker. Last week of youth camp, there was a speaker talking about forgiveness. And he spoke from Psalm 51. And he shared what I shared with you. That to not forgive is to become a prisoner to what the other person did to you. So when camp was over, Ashi and me took Morgan and flew back to Illinois. And we went to meet with my dad. And in that moment in talking to my dad, what I didn't see was a contrite and broken heart. While his words said, I'm sorry I'm hurting you. I'm sorry for causing pain. 
I know I shouldn't do this, but I don't. All I saw was justification, explanations, excuses. I didn't see what I wanted to see, a contrite and broken heart. My dad has grown. My dad and I have talked honestly about forgiveness, and I've told him honestly, Dad, I think the problem is you just haven't modeled remorse or hurt or vulnerability enough in some family members' lives. I see it because I push myself into relationship with you. My dad and I have a relationship. It's not what either one of us had ever dreamed it would be. There's still pain and hurt there, but we're in relationship. We're restoring what once was over 20 years. My point of the story is this. Some of us have done things to people. Some of us have had things done to us. And some of us are carrying around a burden of hurt and pain while others of us are carrying around a burden of guilt and shame. I vowed that I would never, ever do that to my family. And while I did not walk out of my family, while neither one of us abandoned our children or walked away, divorce happened in my family. And it tore my heart apart. And I've shared that with you. The worst day of my life was when we had to share that news with my kids. So you know where Psalm 51 came back around to me after it worked with me on my dad? It came back around to me of this. Do you forgive yourself, Scott? I don't know where you are in your walk with God. I don't know what hurt or pain you have. Maybe you're hiding something that you think you've got taken care of. But all I know is that in my journey, every time that I have stepped off my own platform of trying to figure it out myself, and I've drawn near to God every single time, all he does is pull me in and says, I got you. Let's figure this out. It doesn't mean there haven't been consequences. David's child died. It doesn't mean there hasn't been pain and hurt. His sons rebelled against David and led a split in the kingdom. It doesn't mean that my kids haven't had issues and hurt and pain in their life. But what I can promise you is this, and what my dad is finding out, is that when you go to God and you get this right, you can figure all this out. Because for far too long, I have worried too much about what this matters. My approval, my reputation, how people perceive me. Rather than how God is perceiving me. And rather than what I've done to him to break this relationship. And I didn't grasp the depth of the hurt it causes him. Because he's sitting on his front porch every day waiting for us to come back to restoration. And he is a just and loving God, but he will put things in your life to get your attention. The prodigal son ended up in a pen feeding pigs. David closes by saying in verse 18 and 19, may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, 
Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. In essence, what David is saying is once I get all this taken care of, God, between you and me, then whatever I do, you will use. You will prosper because it's not about me. It's all about God. And no matter what I try to do on this earth on my own, if I'm not in a restored, vulnerable, honest relationship with a contrite, broken heart for what is going on with God, then all this is just meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Vanity of vanities, because we are vain, vain people. God is not vain. His son humbled himself to the point of taking on the form of a man, became a servant, and died on the cross for us. So that through that cross and his shed blood, we can go to Christ and do what he wants us to do. Confess, repent, restore. And then go live your fullest life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the hurt and the pain and the wrongs that have been in my life. While I do not wish them, I'm not proud of them, I know that they have created a different relationship with you. Lord, I pray for everybody in this room, God. I don't know where they're at on this journey. I don't know what their struggles and hurt and pain or what evil has been done in their life, God, but I know this. You're standing there on the porch. You're asking them to come to you with a contrite, humble heart and that you will pull them in And you will forgive. You will restore. And you will reignite a steadfast spirit. God, I'm grateful that we live in a time and age where we do not lose your Holy Spirit, but it's times we can quench it, God. And I pray for those who sin is quenching the Holy Spirit that today, God, you may help them realize that you're here to just love them and repair that relationship. 